This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there and a very happy Wednesday afternoon to you. Great to have you along at 5 past 12. Before the news headlines at half past 12 today, going to be taking a closer look at this new data-driven grain group that's been set up. The GRDC is throwing about $36 million at this new group, which apparently will ultimately benefit growers in terms of profitability and also sustainability. How's it going to work? You will find out shortly here on the Country Hour. And a little later in the hour, you are going to catch up with Corrigan farmer Simon Woolwork, who has done quite a bit of homework on carbon projects. And he thinks farmers would be mad selling carbon credits to big corporations. We've seen recently CBH are doing a trial supplying carbon-neutral barley from a number of growers to customers. So that's telling us that um, these sorts of sustainability criteria is becoming increasingly important in terms of um, expectations um, from our consumers. Um, so we want to make sure our business is in the best possible position to uh, access all the markets we can going forward. You'll hear more from Simon just after uh, cross to the Bureau of Meteorology just after half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC WA and on the ABC Listen app. Livestock shipping company Wellard has recorded a net loss after tax of US $15.5 million after three consecutive profitable financial years. This is quite a change in fortune for Wellard and probably an indicator of how the wider livestock export trade is going. John Klepek is Wellard's executive chairman. John, the numbers aren't pretty. No, not at all. Um, it's a disappointing uh, performance, as we've said in the uh, announcements, um, and it's a you know product of numerous factors. Uh, you know, but the core of it is, as we've said on the um, uh, the last results and the call that we did last, um, um, we spoke six months ago, and in between, you know, the conditions have been uh, very poor in all the markets uh, in the last six months and the first six months of the year as well. So. The uh, Indonesian market, the Australian exports, you know, hovering around that 600,000 um, head uh, mark for the last two years, um, you know, in the good years, you know, to put that in context, the good years are, you know, up to double that, you know, 1.2 million. Uh, so that's a significant contraction. And then you had the closing of the New Zealand market where you had a pull forward of uh, dairy breeders into China. That has left a, a bit of a gap afterwards and there's a, a few... Um, uh, imbalances in the market over there currently so that seized up but that's all the negatives the negatives are, are, are in our neck of the woods uh, but over um, in Turkey um, Turkey um, reopened again with some quotas issued um, and that's been good for us in the um, in right towards the end of the financial year so that's the upside is that uh, things are looking better than they did um, last time we spoke and um, even this time last year where you know, Turkey was not active and the Australian market is as it is currently um, into Indonesia and Vietnam. So that's been the upside. Um, you know, the South America uh, trade to Turkey, Brazil, Turkey, where we have both our ships, two of the three ships operating, the Swagman and the um, and the Drover on consecutive shipments. So so that's the upside. The, um, the downside is, uh, like I said, in our neck of the woods. 
and you know we said it was coming um, and it came uh, so um, no change there but the upside as well there is the pricing the dynamics have changed there so it's now a, a better value proposition for the importers in both Vietnam and Indonesia. Uh, however, the problem yeah, exists there with the capacity to take those imports, um, which we've alluded to on numerous occasions as well. Well, the cattle prices have dropped significantly in recent times, and especially, as you've just mentioned, since Indonesia suspended live cattle imports from four Australian facilities after lumpy skin disease was detected in 13 livestock shipped from Australia. As a result of that, which happened sort of late July, right at the start of August there, as a result of that, exports have reduced to a trickle to this key market, Indonesia. And some pastoralists I've been speaking to, John, now have sort of thousands of cattle on their stations with no ships in sight and no alternative markets, basically putting a $0 price tag on those cattle. How dramatic has the drop in cattle prices been since the start of the year? Look, cattle prices um, have not gone anywhere different to what we thought they would. Um, I've said this, uh, and our position has, you know, not changed on that, so I won't give any anything different to what I've said in the past. You know, the equilibrium prices, if you look at the uh, um, longer-term history of the market, you know, you got to remember we were the biggest cattle traders uh, for a long period of time, so we... We do have some um, knowledge and history of how the market works. Um, you know, you're in that 260, 280 range is the long-term price. So 550 is an aberration. Unfortunately, people get um, used to that high price because it was there for a long time and that think that it's going to last forever. So the market coming back into a more balanced situation is is what we expected. But the concern, it, it, the pricing the pricing is only one part part of it. The bigger part of it, and maybe this has been missed um, in some of our commentary, you know, we've been saying this for probably two years now. The problem with the high prices is when they revert back, there still has to be a buyer for that product in the country. Because what happens, and it's an important point here, the food security is is where uh, the market is. Indonesians want food security. It's not just a trade where, you know, it comes and goes, you turn the tap on and off. They need the core market there. And when the prices went high, they went looking elsewhere for replacement product. And they found that in a ready market with the um, uh, Indian um, frozen buffalo, which is very price competitive and is even price competitive. at You know, if you use the long-term number of 260 and even with the Australian dollar in the low 60s, that, that is really cheap um, relatively uh, to what it was in the past. Uh, it's still not competitive with Indian buffalo. And that's where the penny's got to drop. We are still not competitive with Indian buffalo. And we allowed this uh, situation to happen because the producers, um, with the total lack of leadership uh, from the cattle industry, which is you know virtually invisible, all the producers act in their own self-interest and go looking for the highest price. And they thought it was a great idea to you know start selling um, a product uh, or feeders into um, uh, diverting them into southern into the southern Australian market instead of the market into Indonesia, which needs it for food security. so But isn't it understandable there, that a producer would want to go for the, the highest price? Yeah, but you've got to look at the longer-term impact of that. The cattle industry should have looked at it and said, okay, this is a core market of ours. They need seven 800,000 head of Australian cattle. We need to get them seven 800,000 head of cattle no matter what. Otherwise, they will go elsewhere, which they did. And now you've got the politics of, well, the feedlots are full, um, a few cattle testing LSD positive, well, we'll just start banning 
Australian cattle, there's there's a whole uh, underlying pol- political um, play there because they they want their cattle for food security. We stopped that food security. They went elsewhere, and now we can't cry that the the market is is um, or the feedlots are no longer there so, to take the product. So you the, think this the, is more political than anything? Real concerns about Australia having lumpy skin disease about that thirteen cattle that tested for LSD. My, my personal view, yeah, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Put yourself in their shoes. They they saw Australia as as a, a, a regular supply of product. Prices went high. They they can't they don't have the capacity to start paying triple pricing for for their beef at at the at the local wet markets. They went elsewhere. Someone was willing to supply them. The Brazilians have now jumped in and they're willing to supply them at a price as well. We had to continue to supply that seven eight hundred thousand that they had the capacity for at a price that they could afford to make money. Otherwise, they will shut the businesses which they have. The seven hundred thousand capacity is now. 350 or, or even less than that, 300, 350. So there is no one there to take the product because they're getting it from somewhere else. And does that so, explain yeah, why this is taking so long? Because producers are really frustrated with, you know, it's now over a month since Indonesia put that suspension on those four facilities. But, I mean, everything else has come to a trickle anyway, even out of the yeah, approved it's only, facilities. But it's, not, it, it's just not the it, – it's come to a trickle because – not only because of the LSD, um, that's not the reason it's come to trickle. It comes to a trickle because the feedlots over there are full. The feedlots are full. The capacity over there is full. So even if there wasn't an LSD issue currently, there is nowhere, and this is what I've been saying in the last couple of calls that we've had, there is nowhere for the cattle to go because there is no feedlot capacity to take them. So the volumes that are going into Indonesia now would be the same if LSD was there or not. Mm. Because the price has come a, right down and they're still overlay. not interested. Correct, because, and, which is what I said last time, uh, if you have 30,000 heads sitting in, in, in a yard and nowhere to go, the price, the price could go down to unsellable. What lies ahead then, John? I mean, trading conditions for the next year. Um, you've, you've shifted your main trading routes to, you know, to adjust to the, where the demand is, I guess, for the product. How's it shaping up for Wellart? Yeah, look, as I said, the, the upside is for us is South America. Um, we believe the China dairy breeders will return uh, in calendar 24. That will be a positive movement because that's, that's virtually at a trickle at the moment. So those markets should improve. Turkey is, look, Turkey is volatile. Um, you know, quotas um, uh, come and go. Um, at the moment, there's trade there. It can slow up. It, it's not something that is a, uh, a steady state, but it's positive. Um, Vietnam is as we've done a couple of shipments into Vietnam because the uh, slaughter price of of the because they're slaughter cattle rather than um, feeder cattle is now attractive uh, to the importers there, uh, but that's not at, at great volumes. But there is uh, um, a few shipments going there, and for Indonesia, we um, we think um, it will be as it is. Um, we want the volume uh, to increase, and that means you know, unfortunately for the cattle producers, they have to take what's on offer. Um, because that's the price you have to be to be competitive with the um, other products, and it, it, you have to get you know take take the market on if you want to get the feedlots back to the seven hundred thousand uh, level. Um, the pricing has to be super attractive to say for someone over there to say, "Hey, I've got a feedlot business. Um, I think I can make money out of this. I want to get back into the game." John, good to talk to you. Thank you. No problem. John Klepek, he's the chief executive of the livestock shipping company Wellard, r- reporting today. 
a net loss after tax of US $15.5 million. I think that works out to be around about $24 million Australian dollars, a loss of $24 million Australian dollars. 17 past 12. We're moving from cattle to sheep now. And of course, on a Wednesday, uh, just before the news at one o'clock today, you're going to find out what the prices were like at this morning's sheep and lamb sale at Katanning. Uh, numbers were up about two and a half thousand head, and I hear prices did slump a little bit. Tracy Kilner will be along just before one to go through those details and tell you just how much prices dropped in each category. It hasn't been a great week for the sheep industry, has it? In particular, the live trade. With new footage captured by an animal rights campaigner allegedly showing sheep being mishandled by overseas buyers in the Middle East. The footage was featured on ABC TV's 7.30 on Monday night and it's been a talking point at this week's Darren Machinery Field Days event. Geraldton Rural reporter Lucinda Jose is at Darren today and has tracked down livestock agent Craig Walker from Midwest Agribusiness. Craig, what did you feel when you saw the footage of how sheep were being treated on Monday night's 7.30 program or footage like that? I didn't actually see the footage of that particular incident on Monday, but I have seen a number of incidences that have been brought forward by Animals Australia and and various other animal rights groups that we've seen over a period of time. And really, it is a, a sense of frustration that we're feeling at the moment in the industry where people are are seeing that these indiscretions are being made and really at the end of the day the industry is doing everything that they possibly can to do the right thing by what the requirements are and to be leaders in the world industry as far as animal welfare. But every now and then incidences like this are going to happen. We cannot control every situation and every market that we're going to be in. 99.9% of the people do the right thing and try to do the right thing but there is always going to be that element. It doesn't matter what it is in society whether it is driving motor cars, people will speed. If uh, people, we know drugs are illegal, but people still take drugs. So there is always going to be some element of society that will break the law. And when it's internationally, it's even harder. But our industry does try to do the right thing. And by and large, we do a very, very good job. Hi, uh, Brett Jones here from the Jandy Marino Stud. Disappointed about the leakage from the SCAS supply chain. However, fully the knowledge that when you slaughter sheep, it's never going to look pretty. But disappoint, once again, disappointed at the leakage out of the supply chain. What does need to be done to um, stop that sort of treatment happening in the future? I think really what we need to do is actually work with animal rights groups. We need to actually say to them, we need to be a a collaboration, we need to work together and when you do hear of this information, please let us know immediately so we can address it. And if you want to be at the table when we have these negotiations with these people who are making these incidents, we welcome your, your involvement in it. I don't think that we should be a them and us situation. It should be a collaborative approach between government, animal rights and the industry to, for the betterment of the world and the markets that we're supplying. And that could be as simple as education, what is right, and then also finding the people that are creating and doing the crime, and that's what it is. It is a crime that they are 
committing and actually hold those people accountable. But we need the help of everybody in the whole chain, from the producer to the truck driver to the man loading the ship to the government inspectors to the vets to the animal rights people themselves who are around there seeing this. Come and tell the industry, come and work with us and we can make it better. What does the future hold for the sheep industry in Western Australia at the moment? There's a lot of negativity about the industry, not only because of what we saw on 7.30 report the other night, but the potential closure of live export industry. We will try to carry on. It's a shame that we can't get all of the animals slaughtered at appropriate times in West Australia as, as as we would like. Um, it's also very, very disappointing to see Murray Watt able to come over and mix it with the high end of town the other day, but unable to make time to meet with producers. Are you concerned that people will be less willing to invest in genetics with the cloud over the live export industry and such congestion with the processes? Absolutely. Um, we, we expect probably a 30% drop in prices this year and maybe even a, perhaps a 20% reduction in clearance. Um, that's money straight out of my pocket. The merino sheep, however, is um, we've changed the type of sheep we've been breeding to suit uh, the demand from, for slaughter at abattoirs in Western Australia to try to fit in with, with the future as we see it. It's very difficult when governments uh, uh, don't allow us time to make those adjustments to both our practices and our genetics. We're hitting a few roadblocks, we're hitting a few challenges with the commodity prices and the delays in getting um, animals processed through processing works and also selling the product internationally. We're also seeing, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were seeing goat market, we are getting nearly $10 a kilo for it, now we're struggling to get $2 a kilo. We're seeing lamb prices where they are. So we have hit a hurdle in the way it is, but it's also the fact that we haven't, as much as I hate to say it, in Australia for the last three years we haven't had a drought. We haven't had a time where people are off loading stock and then we've created that that demand in the east or the demand in other parts of western australia so we've sort of reached our capacity of where we are and we sort of hit a bit of a a downward slide i I really do believe that there is a really strong future in sheep in uh, in western australia in particular i know that we've hit a few hurdles but i do encourage every producer to become proactive and talk to their city cousins and make sure that they're aware of the issues that we're going through not play the poor pity me situation because farmers aren't that way they are very resilient but there is definitely a future in in the sheep industry and in the livestock industry going forward. We have hit a, sm- a minor roadblock at the moment. Yes, if you look at the, the cost of production and the cost of shearing, it, it really, you've got to scratch your head and think, is it worth it? But they do have a system in farming. And if you do talk to some of the innovative agronomists around that are growing different products, i.e. the vetch in the rotation, which complements the, uh, the wheat growth later on, which also can bring in the sheep for production, th- those things will take the farming industry further again. As, that the innovations that are upon us with pasture management is the equivalence of what deep ripping and moldboarding was to uh, to the cropping side. So the sheep industry has got a very strong uh, future. I just believe that we need to try and bring the whole unit of everyone together to make the consumer aware of what we're getting at the moment compared to what they're paying for, for red meat in the, the, the uh, two major supermarket chains. So the disparity there needs to be brought to their attention so that they understand where we are. And I think it's a big education program, not a, um, a them against us sort of scenario. So as a whole, we need to bring our industry together. 
Livestock agent Craig Walker from Midwest Agribusiness and Brett Jones from the Ajanding Merino Studs speaking to Lucinda Jose out at the Mer uh, Darren Machinery Field Day event. It's on today and it also continues tomorrow. 24 past 12 here on the Country Hour. I wonder what you thought of that. I mean, Craig picking up on a couple of positives towards the end there. Is that the way you see it? Or let me know this afternoon, 0448922604 to text through and have your say. Uh, this text just through, put your name and where you're texting from so we know where you are, uh, saying that Darren Machinery dealers will look forward to more sales as farmers move away from sheep. And no surprise to see the activist on ABC television earlier in the week. The text is 0448 Twenty-five past twelve. The head of the WA Farmers Organisation is also disappointed with what he saw on 7.30. John Hassel says breaches to the Australian export regulation standards are unacceptable. But he thinks many animal rights campaigners are simply against all livestock farming. You know, make no mistake, our country's done a lot of work trying to tidy this uh, animal welfare up around the world. In fact, we've set the standard for the rest of the world. And for that to be uh, for that to be thrown in our face, I'm not particularly happy about that. And I think that, you know, rather than having some second-rate lobby group, you know, going on and getting the evidence to just try and do us harm to shut our industry down, we'd be better off having an inspector over there saying, listen, boys, you need to tidy this up and uh, and we'll continue the trade. But if you don't tidy it up, then, you know, we won't have a trade. And I think if we had an inspector, then we'd be a lot better off. So, you know, I, I, I absolutely, completely reject the tactics that Animals Australia use because they're just, uh, you know, they want all forms of animal exploitation removed, including a guide dog, including your pet goldfish. You know, there's nothing rational about what they're doing. Let's do this in a rational, sensible way and make sure that the standards that we have set in Australia for the rest of the world are upheld rather than throwing the industry out and losing that standard for the rest of the world. President of WA Farmers, John Hassel with Sophie Johnson. 27 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. We'll catch up with the news headlines in just a moment and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology checking conditions right across Western Australia. First though, over the next five years, the Grains Research and Development Corporation is going to spend $36 million to help fund a new data-driven grain group. It's called Analytics for the Australian Grains Industry, or Aggie for short, and it will use statistics, machine learning, data fusion and analytics to model the future. GRDC Managing Director Nigel Hart says a more streamlined approach will ultimately have benefits for growers. What it does is it actually brings together three great research partners and what we're focused on is bringing together all of the data and analytics that we have across our research programs, trying to make better sense of them to be able to um, advise research programs which then turn into how do we get better solutions for growers out there in the paddock um, to improve their profitability and sustainability. What sort of data are we talking about? The paddock data or research? There's a whole host of different um, uh, data points that we actually do. There is a whole bunch of trials that we uh, conduct across the country. We have a national variety trial program which creates a lot of data. We have uh, on-farm 
paddock trials um, data that's actually created. And we also um, produce a lot of data within our, our breeding pre-breeding program. So what we're trying to do with all of this, this data and analytics is to help make quicker decisions around, um, say, for example, in pre-breeding programs, how can we get varieties out into a grower's, improve varieties out into a grower's paddock quicker um, using data and analytics to make those decisions? $36 million is a lot of money over five years. What is it actually going to be spent on in terms of, will it be people or um, computing? Yeah, the $36 million over five years is a lot of money. It's also complemented by about $56 million in co-investment from our uh, three partners, Curtin University, the University of Queensland and the University of Adelaide. A core component of that, yes, it is about people. Um, we think that we'll be having about, being able to fund about 48 uh, research uh, managers and also what we're hoping to do is train the future generation of data and analytic scientists as well and we think that that'll probably be another sort of you know 40 to 48 um, um, students coming through that program so it funds development of capability it funds existing researchers in terms of the work that they're doing as well as uh, all that work that goes towards having that computing capacity and capability to be able to uh, analyze that data and, and make sense of it and put it into a form that can actually advise and inform better decisions through our research programs yeah, you have been working on similar projects for the last couple of years. Have you got some examples of, of things that, if you can uh, break it down for us to things we might be able to imagine, what sort of decisions have they helped to make? Oh, one, of the, one of the really great examples is particularly around uh, our pre-breeding programs and being able to select um, varieties that, uh, and do that process quicker so you can get those varieties out into the paddock a whole bunch sooner. Um, that's really been one of the one of the hallmark um, outcomes of the previous work that we've actually done. You know, growers are always looking for that opportunity to be able to increase their yield or to improve the disease resistance of the varieties that they're growing. Um, and that's what these analytics programs actually help to do. It helps to hopefully speed up that program to get that type of um, new variety into a grower's hands to be able to improve their yield and, and hopefully improve their profitability at the end of the day, as well as the sustainability of their farming system. GRDC Managing Director Nigel Hart with Lucinda Josen talking about that $36 million spend to help fund the new data-driven grain group called Aggie. 29 to 1 here on the Country Hour and Brianna Shepherd in the studio with the news headlines. Hello. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has confirmed the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum will be held on Saturday, October 14. Australians will be asked to vote yes or no to enshrining in the Constitution a Voice to Parliament, which would act as an independent advisory body for First Nations people. Mr Albanese says it's a once-in-a-generation chance to bring the country together. A prominent Indigenous rights campaigner says The Voice doesn't adequately address disadvantages faced by First Nations Australians, but says it is a step in the right direction. Menang woman Megan Cracker initially opposed The Voice over concerns it would be tokenistic, but has since changed her mind to support a yes vote. And crews in Hawaii are nearing the end of their search for victims of the deadliest US wildfire in more than a century. Three weeks after the blaze devastated a historic seaside community in Maui, the death toll stands at 115, but an unknown number of people are still missing. More news at one o'clock. Brianna, thank you so much for that update. 28 to 1 between now and the news at 1. Off to Catanning for the results of the sheep market. Also heading to the eastern states today just to keep tabs on the movements of the Varroa mite. 
um, a big meeting being held tomorrow right across the country just to see what the next step should be in terms of managing that particular mite. So we'll get an update shortly. And also taking a look at the cost of fetal calf blood. It's through the roof at the moment, $680 a litre. And it's so important for so many different things. Cancer research, right up there, that's what it's used for. And also just checking for a range of diseases in livestock. And apparently you just can't use an alternative. It's got to be that. And so if you need it, you got to pay that kind of money, $680 a litre. We'll get to that shortly. First, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Caroline Crow with you this afternoon. Caroline, it's... Um, Pretty much rinse and repeat, isn't it, across the Southwest Land Division? Uh, definitely, Belle. That that's quite correct. Um, dry throughout the Southwest Land Division today. Um, the winds are starting to tend that sort of east uh, southeastly. We did see them, uh, sorry, east northeastly, and they were a little bit gusty this morning through parts of the Southwest Land Division. Um, and then coming into tomorrow, the winds are going to be moderate to fresh northeastly, and, and could be a bit gusty in the morning as well, particularly um, as the gradient increases and bringing quite a bit of warm air down. So uh, temperatures today, uh, tomorrow we're probably looking at potentially four, even six degrees uh, warmer uh, throughout a good part of the state actually. yeah, for tomorrow. So Darren today, for example, is looking at 24 degrees and tomorrow we're looking at a max of 30 to thirty degrees, so uh, quite warm conditions. Um, coming into Friday, there is a weak front which is going to move through the southwest of the southwest land division. Uh, most of the falls will uh, be sort of southwest of Perth to Albany, uh, but you could get a light fall getting up to Geraldton down to Bremer Bay. Um, pretty pretty light fall, so as you get through that those uh, inland parts. Coming into Saturday, so I've been talking Talking about a vigorous westerly airstream and a cold front or a series of cold fronts uh, moving through. Um, the cold front uh, over the weekend is uh, starting to consolidate and uh, looks as though it's going to move through uh, the whole part of the southwest land division. Uh, most of the falls will be that Perth to Albany area, uh, but as you go uh, sort of extend a little bit further, sort of north and east um, out to uh, about Calbarry to Meriden to around Israelite Bay falls in that area we look look as though they were going to be around the one to five millimetre and northeast of that sort of about um, less than one to two millimetres um, so yeah that cold front looks as though it is going to sweep through the whole of the southwest land division uh, before sort of moving further east on Sunday um, accumulative uh yeah that's the kind of rainfall so it's really that one cold front coming through and uh, the timing of it uh, is looking later on saturday getting towards the southwest corner and moving through that saturday night into the sunday all right let's take a look across northern and eastern parts how's that looking this afternoon caroline yeah so uh dry uh Conditions uh, through the north of the state, Bell, and continuing uh, into the outlook period. Uh, temperatures at the moment are sitting above average, but we will see a little bit of cooling through the Kimberley and a little bit below average uh, coming into Friday and uh, into the weekend. And then a little bit further south as you get sort of into the southeastern parts of the state. Uh, as that cold front moves through over the weekend, uh, we'll get the, just light, those light showers just creeping into southwestern parts the Gascoigne into southern parts of the gold fields uh, and into uh, the Eucla. But once again, it's just going to be those very light falls uh, getting into those uh, locations.
And then the warnings this afternoon. Anything today? No warnings, uh, Belle. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Caroline. It is 24 to 1. And there were a few places in the southwest and southern coastal regions that received sort of one to two millimetres of rain in the last 24 hours to nine o'clock this morning, but nowhere recorded any more than that. Still to come here on the Country Hour, off ticker tanning for the results of the sheep market and also keen to get your thoughts on carbon soil projects and carbon credits this afternoon. Because if someone came up to you and they were offering to set up a carbon project on your farm and give you money for the carbon credits, would you sign the contract and take the cash? Simon Woolwork farms at Corrigan, so that's about... 230 kilometres southeast of Perth. He's done quite a bit of homework on carbon and thinks farmers would be mad selling off what he thinks is a valuable asset. Um, so globally there's this um, process of decarbonisation where we're trying to respond to climate change, um, decarbonising our energy systems and all sorts of other sectors. And there's some increasing regulation from the federal government about uh, the big emitters in our economy reducing emissions um, and also offsetting emissions. So that's increasing the demand for carbon. And obviously as farmers, that's part of what we do is we store carbon in trees and soils. Um, So there's demand from other industries for carbon offsets from agriculture. So... um, that's where the demand's coming from. Um, there are industries being very proactive about this as they can see the writing on the wall and also the increasing regulation. Has anyone come knocking on your door or to your neighbour's doors saying, hey, I've got some money to offer here? Not specifically to us, but I'm certainly hearing a lot about it around the traps. Um, We've taken a different approach. Uh, We've um, engaged uh, independent uh, advisor around carbon and carbon for us is part of a broader picture about future-proofing our farming business. So we're, we've recently registered a self-funded soil carbon project and also looking to do the same with a, a vegetation project. But our motivations are really based about retaining those carbon credits ourselves in our own farming business. So the help you've employed is advice, but it's not actually taking away some of the carbon profits. Is, is that right? Yeah, so it doesn't involve a third party as such. Um, we are funding this, the advice ourselves. Um, there's other costs involved, such as registering the project, um, fairly intensive soil testing every five years, auditing process, but really motivated to um, keep ownership of those credits. And in the case of soil carbon, we're really unsure whether we're actually going to accumulate any soil carbon because the data says otherwise at this point. Historic soil tests that um, we've seen recently uh, indicating that it's going to be quite difficult. For us, we're going to be um, adopting a range of practices to continue to improve our, our soil fertility, uh, whether that's deep ripping or, or manures and composts in places and claying. So registering a soil carbon project for us is about, um, you know, if we do increase soil carbon, it's an extra bonus on top of productivity gains. That would be a concern for a lot of farmers in the wheat belt, wouldn't it? Particularly in, as you get towards the more marginal areas, the sandy soils, the decreasing uh, rainfall that we're, are being predicted. It's not a guarantee that you're going to actually be increasing the carbon in the soil, is it? 
Yeah, West Australia is quite a unique environment in terms of our wheat belt, in terms of the sandiness of our soils and also how, how dry it is and, and soil type and, and climate or rainfall have a large impact on the potential of our soils to store carbon. You can influence soil carbon with the farming system, like there's a better chance to increase soil carbon with a mixed farming system as opposed to a, a full cropping system but we're farming in a drying climate and the risk is that that will have a, a major determination on our soil carbon stocks going forward and if we're uh, selling off soil carbon to third parties um, and we find at the end of a 25-year carbon project that we're in a, a, a negative uh, situation with our soil carbon stocks as a liability to the farmer. I'm intrigued with that. Do you know if it's actually written into contracts uh, along those lines? If you do go backwards, who actually pays? Yeah, I'm not sure, but it's really important farmers um, take some independent advice around this and really understand what's in the con contracts and who ultimately takes responsibility for any decline in the soil carbon stocks through these carbon projects. And as I mentioned before, in our case, we're very reluctant to s sell um, any of our carbon credit units um, that we accumulate until the end of the project. It's different for vegetation projects because we know we're very confident about growing trees. We, we've been doing that for many years, so we've, we perhaps have more confidence in, in using those carbon credits to decarbonise our business. Why is it so important to you to retain your carbon credits? Yeah, it goes back to um, about future-proofing our farming business in terms of both the resilience of our uh, landscape and productivity of our of our soils but also market access. Um, we've seen recently CBH are doing a trial supplying um, carbon neutral, neutral barley from a, from a number of growers to customers so that's telling us that um, these sorts of sustainability criteria is becoming increasingly important in terms of um, expectations um, from our consumers. Um, so we want to make sure our business is in the best possible position um, to access all the markets we can going forward. Do you think that's going to be something that's going to become even more prevalent going forward? Do you think more and more of the customers are going to be seeking that sort of clarification and the certification of the sustainability? Yes, certainly from our research um, and just general information around the place, that seems to be the way things are going. Um, we are now supplying some, some carbs from our cattle uh, enterprise to a sustainable supply chain. We're getting a small premium from that, but um, at some point in the future that may become standard business. Um, We've also aware that CBH has done some some market research around these things, and the, the indications are that customers are increasingly focused on sustainability in how we produce our products. It sounds like you've done a fair bit of homework on all of this, Simon. But I, I would imagine you've also chatted to some cluey farmers who have looked after their land for years. One thing I keep hearing from them is they feel as though they have done the right thing by their property and the environment, but then they're not actually able to cash in on it. They're not able to make money from improving the carbon in the soil because they've actually looked after it as they've been going along. What's your thoughts on that or your response to that argument? 
Yeah, it's certainly a, a frustration and something I hear fairly regularly as well. And yes, uh, particularly, well, started in the 90s, the land care movement, there was a lot of tree planting and, and farmers are really motivated to improve the landscape and the soil health and things like that. Um, there are some emerging methodologies around that perhaps uh, take that into account and it's called carbon insetting where you may be able to get some um, benefit from the historical works that have been done and supply products to market that takes that into account. So um, there's nothing set in concrete at the moment but it's really important as farmers we stay engaged in these conversations and hopefully these methodologies will change and we'll have options there. One thing that has surprised me today, Simon, is just how many cars are going past in this back paddock of yours in uh, Corrigan. Gee, I didn't know the traffic was this bad. <laughs> yeah, well, it's great to catch up with you here in Fremantle, Richard, because we're both keen Dockers supporters. <laughs> Simon Woolwork, who farms at Corrigan, about 230 kilometres southeast of Perth, speaking to Richard Hudson about carbon projects and credits. Quarter to one here on the Country Hour. Fruit and almond growers and beekeepers in southern parts of New South Wales are desperately trying to figure out what they're allowed to do now that new Varroa mite surveillance zones have been set up. Emergency meetings are being held because it's estimated at least 74,000 hives are inside the new surveillance zones in the Sunraysia and Riverina regions. The DPI's Deputy Chief Plant Protection Officer, Dr Chris Anderson, says any hive movements will be closely tracked and subject to strict conditions. We've had to move really quickly on this, uh, working with the local and national uh, beekeeping industry, the pollination industries, and we have been working with our state and federal counterparts to assess the risk around this situation to identify a safe way of moving hives out of almond orchards and getting them to locations where they can be tracked um, and subjected to further surveillance. Um, We've identified that it is safe for those bees to move out. They will be subject to special uh, surveillance requirements moving forward, Um, but that risk assessment is based effectively on the potential exposure to mites and their distance from the IPs that has been conducted by our epidemiologists. And what about the hives in the uh, surveillance zones in Victoria? Do you know if those uh, hives will be allowed to move? Yeah, my understanding is that Victoria at present um, have not allowed um, hive movements and and we're talking at the moment as of tonight, um, but I'm sure that they will be looking to make further announcements around that. So no new infested premises in the Sunraysia and Riverina regions, is that right? That's right. But you do have seven new ones uh, further north around Kempsey, Newcastle and Singleton. Can you tell me more details about those? Well, yeah, so we, um, we are continuing to conduct surveillance and tracing, especially around Kempsey, because we really want to get to the bottom of what's happened in that situation. It's very important to understanding where we go with this response. Um, at this point in time, uh, we haven't found an index case, but we certainly have found some areas where there are much higher mite loads. Um, So that's a continuing investigation. Um, And we can expect that there will be more IPs that are discovered.
Dr Chris Anderson, he's the Deputy Chief Plant Protection Officer with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, speaking to Kim Honan. Hives in the north of New South Wales are also being tested to see if the destructive varroa mite has spread north. Beekeepers and government department representatives from each state will be meeting tomorrow. And the main question being asked is, is it time to move from eradication to management of varroa mite in Australia? You can read more on this. It's on the ABC's rural website. 12 minutes to one. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. A vital ingredient for cancer research and other medical work is in short supply and increasingly expensive. I'm talking about fetal calf blood, which is collected by abattoirs when a pregnant cow is sent to slaughter. This year, calf blood has reached a record price of over $680 per litre, And according to Professor Claudine Bonder from the Centre for Cancer Biology, there are just no alternatives. Fetal blood, as you can appreciate, is from a young developing animal and the blood is so rich in nutrients. It's really high in growth factors and uh, serum protein that a high level of those support proteins are not found in adult blood. And despite all of our efforts to try to use either adult blood or even synthetic replacements, nothing actually matches. And the thing is, we don't really know what is in that fetal blood. We know many of the components, but we don't know all of them. And because we don't know all of them, we can't adequately replace it with something else. If you can't get this eventually, will the research have to stop? The consequence could be that we would not be able to develop new treatments for cancer that are applicable to lots of people. It's becoming increasingly difficult to uh, undertake medical research. I think, you know, what's difficult to manage is that we are constantly writing grants to support the medical research, but those grants are written, you know, a year or two ahead. They've written a year before they're announced, takes a while for the money to come in and then the products are resourced and purchased. So we budget as best we can for the reagents like the fetal bovine serum. But if that product, if the price doubles or triples and we're not aware of that, it falls outside of our budget and then we can't do the experiments. Professor Claudine Bonder from the Centre for Cancer Biology with Karen Hunt. Well, cancer research isn't the only use of this fetal calf blood. Dr Richard Weir is from the Berrimer Lab in Darwin and he says the lab uses it every day to screen for viruses that affect cattle. For example, blue tongue virus. The fetal bovine serum is essential for us to grow the cells. Without the fetal bovine serum, we wouldn't be able to grow the cells and we can't grow the cells, we can't grow the viruses. And why is calf blood so special? Why can't you use, say, lamb blood or or piglet blood? Uh, Very good question. Uh, You probably could, but I think the the bovine blood is available in sufficient quantities to be able to get enough volume to produce what we currently use. I'm not in the market personally for for bovine serum, but where do you get it from? 
Uh, the current batch we're using is Australian sourced. The new batch that we've recently purchased is from France. Is that unusual to be importing the bovine serum? It's not unusual. Um, what we basically look for when we're looking for a new batch of serum is something that doesn't contain the antibodies for the viruses that we would want to grow, uh, doesn't contain any infectious agents and promotes the growth of the cells. And if the locally sourced fetal bovine serum doesn't provide that, then we go internationally. And so what's wrong with the local stuff at the moment then? Uh, nothing wrong with the local stuff, but the overseas stuff was better, providing uh, better growth and it didn't have any of the antibodies that we didn't want in the, in the serum and didn't have any infectious agents in it. It just provided better growth factors for the cells that we use. In Australia, the value of fetal bovine serum is on the up. It's hit a record this year. Are you noticing that? Are you aware of all of this? Very aware. When we were sourcing new batches, the batches that we were looking for were almost $700 a litre. And if you're on a, a defined budget, that's a pretty prohibitive cost to bear by the lab. Was the French stuff cheaper? Uh, the French stuff was cheaper, yes. What's your thoughts on why the price has gone up the way it has? Uh, it's probably supply and demand. I mean, we've been doing this sort of work for the last 40 years. Um, and as far as I'm aware, the labs that do similar things around the country to us, they haven't increased their workload. So I think it's probably more just a supply issue rather than anything else. Now, you talk about bringing in batches. Are there any batches of bovine serum in this room that we're in? No, there's no, not. There's not. What, is, what does a batch look like? How much do you buy? Well, we, we buy, in our current situation, 50 litres. So that's 100 bottles. Mm. So that's a significant outlay. Um, just show a bottle. Here we go. It's got the label on it. Fetal bovine serum sterile 500 millilitres. That's what it is, and this is our old batch. Manufactured from 100% French bovine material. Wow. And in this fridge, there's, there's lots of large jars that look like red cordial. What's that? Uh, that's our balanced salt solutions that we use to grow the cells in. So the, the solutions have a mixture of amino acids and salts, and we add 10% fetal bovine serum to that to grow the cells in the flasks. For those in the cattle industry listening to this, why is your work important to them? It's a biosecurity job, and what we do is we have sentinel herds scattered around the Territory that we routinely screen uh, for viruses, and we look for viruses basically that shouldn't be here or that are being introduced into the country. Blue tongue virus is the main one that we look for and we're one of the, the only labs in the country that routinely screen for blue tongue virus and we screen for blue tongue virus every week of every year. And how's the budget going given that the serum's going up in price? I have no idea. 
no idea what the budget's doing, but I got approval to buy a new batch of fetal calf soon, and that's what I'm happy with. Dr. Richard Weir, he's from the Berrimer Lab in Darwin, and that French bovine serum was about $200 a litre cheaper than the Australian product. And Dr. Weir was speaking to Matt Brand. If you want more, the story is online for you right now. Just search fetal calf blood ABC, fetal calf blood ABC, to check out uh, Maddie and Karen's story. Four minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Circling the calendar, the Prime Minister announces the date for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. Why are South Australia and Tasmania expected to be battleground states as the referendum campaign ramps up? And more than one million Australians are living with eating disorders. A new 10-year strategy focuses on prevention and early intervention. Those stories are more from right across the country and around the globe coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. And Richard thinks you might not know how to spell fetal. So it's F-O-E-T-A-L to look at that online story. Fetal Calf Blood ABC, F-O-E-T-A-L. Three minutes to one o'clock. I know you can spell it. 6,761 was the final tally at the Catanning sheep sale today, so numbers up almost 2,500 on last week. Tracy Kilner's got the prices at her fingertips. Hello, Tracy. Can you run through them? The yarding was dominated by mutton with prices trending down on the prime lines. The heavy ewes sold to $68 a head. Store mutton sold to minimal values with one processor out and restockers not interested. Heavy new season lambs made up to $107, while the old season lamb eased on last week's values with processors very selective. Trade weight new season lamb sold for $80, while the heavier weight categories made from $90 to $107 a head. Lightweight old season lamb sold to $30. Heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made from $20 to $50 a head. Trade weight lamb eased to selling from $40 to $65. And a good lineup of heavy lamb sold to $91 a head. Store ewes made from under $10 up to $30 a head. Medium weights sold from $29 to $60. And heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight returned $30 to $68 a head. Ram lambs made from $30 to $34. Mature rams eased selling from $10 to $20 a head. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details a minute and a half away from the news at one. Do you remember, were you listening in yesterday when you heard all about the injured farm dog, Ali, who became a TikTok sensation after rounding up sheep from her wheelchair? So she's pretty incredible. Her owner is um, incredibly proud of her. Well, the story is online now. You need to go and check this out. And it's on the ABC Rural uh, website. So just put ABC Rural, you'll find the website. It's the lead story. So not only are there some great photos of the gorgeous Ali and her wheels, but there is the video there as well of her doing her incredible work rounding up those sheep. Go and check it out right now or this afternoon when you get time. Just put ABC Rural in your search and it's right there at the top of the ABC Rural webpage. Uh, you can even see her getting stuck in the rushes. Now, I think Neil from Boy Up Brook has cracked into our system here at the ABC because he says there needs to be a major inquiry into the red meat industry in Australia 
It shows the farmers and consumers are getting ripped off by the major supermarkets. Neil, we are going to be discussing that exact topic right here on The Country Out tomorrow, talking to producers, the Australian Meat Industry Council, WAMCO, and fingers crossed, hopefully Coles. News time, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.